As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. If you're the sort of Totally listener who's ever wondered to yourself, hmm, this Totally Football show makes for a really excellent podcast three times a week, but what if it was available in book form? Then you are in luck. The Totally Football Yearbook is the definitive chronicle of this season that's coming to its climax and it will look absolutely ravishing on your bookshelf or indeed in your bathroom. There's a foreword from Jamie Carragher, plus features in club-by-club season reviews, stats, quizzes and expertise from our chums at The Athletic and your Totally favourites like Daniel Storey, Rafa Honigstein, Duncan Alexander, James Horncastle and Julianne Laurent. The Totally Football Yearbook is out on August the 5th and you can pre-order your copy wherever you get your books today. Totally Football Show. Today, Champions League. Wednesday, Parisians losing their heads like it's the tale of two cities. And in many ways, it was a tale of two cities. The worst of times and then the best of times for Pep's side. Meanwhile, for Chelsea, will that 1-1 in Madrid be enough? And was Werner's the worst finish for a sitter since Damien's nanny in the omen? We digest the semi-final action, then look ahead to the weekend with big games everywhere from Newcastle to Old Trafford. All that plus epic drama in the Intertotally as Horncastle faces Laurence. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Good day to you, good listener. Here we are Thursday morning. 29th of April, big day by the way for football anniversaries. We'll touch on those later on in the company though today of Duncan Alexander. Hello Duncan. Hello James. Uh, hello to you. Jack Lang is also with us. Hello Jack. Good morning. And also live from his office at Rochdale AFC, David Priest. Good morning. Uh, can I just say that um, that's a wonderful haircut that. I think you're talking to Duncan. I am talking to Duncan. Right. That's the first time anyone employed by Rochdale has complimented my hair, as far as I know, and I, I like it. I'm only a temporary fixture here, so it's... So is hair, in many ways. Um, would you like to describe Duncan's haircut for those who are not present on our Zoom call? It's very shorn. I think it's complimented very well by the large spectacles as well. It's a very, very strong look. <laughs> to me, he looks like a kind of tech entrepreneur who's maybe lining up a billion-dollar bid for a Premier League club or something crazy like that. Uh, David, lovely to hear. Congratulations about your your, your position there at Rochdale, although you say it's only temporary, but particularly so 
after your keeper conceded three midweek at Wimbledon. Yeah, they weren't all his fault though. Um, yeah, it's um, it was just a, an arrangement that suits us both. I think they were, um, yeah, they needed a goalkeeping coach. The goalkeeping coach left sort of with nine or ten games left to go in the season, and I was available and uh, got a phone call from uh, Brian Barry Murphy, who's a manager here, and um, yeah, it's it's worked out great. And of course, they were, they were in a bit of a predicament before I came in, and they, they've actually given themselves a fighting chance of still getting out. This with two games to go, so it's. Um, yeah, it's 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 been a great experience just being here, and I, and I can see it definitely that um, you know not knowing much about Brian before I came in as well, um, he's somebody with a massive future in football. You know, he's done a great job here on a on a limited budget, playing some great football as well, very brave football, and um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a bit disconsolate after the other night because it was ninety seventh minute equaliser. Yeah, after Jay Lynch, goalkeeper, saved a penalty as well and uh, it would have been a massive, massive result for them but yeah, it just makes things a little bit hard for the next, last two games. All right, four points from safety. You're in the bottom four of League One. League One sorry. Who's, <laughs> who's, your, who's the weekend's game against? Uh, we've got Doncaster home on Saturday and then it's MK Dons away, the last game of the season. All right, huge fixtures. Now, also midweek alongside Wimbledon Rochdale was the Champions League semi-finals. Man City... In Paris, putting in uh, one of their best second halves ever, some have described it as, and coming away with a 2-1 victory from the Parc des Princes. Chelsea, meanwhile, returning from Madrid on Tuesday with a point and an away goal after the 1-1 there at Val de Bebas. Intriguingly, both sides playing without a recognised striker. Let's talk City first. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Le pied gauche de Marez, le pied droit de Kevin De Bruyne. Navas est prêt à bondir, c'est pour Marez C'est pour Ian Marez Le scénario catastrophe au Parc des Princes Ryan Marez vient plomber les espoirs de qualification du PSG Paris Saint-Germain 1, Man City 2, and it was very much a bout de souffle Wednesday night in Paris. Breathless stuff. Paris Saint-Germain bossing it in the first... 45 minutes, more PS5 than PSG, I felt, Neymar at times. But then City completely taking over. Uh, in fact, the shot count's remarkable. 9-4 PSG in the first half, 7-1 to Man City in the second. What happened? Kind of hard to explain. It's the kind of game you look at your notes after it and half of them just seem completely irrelevant. And it's tempting, I think, because it's more recent just to look at the second half as the one that defines the game. But it really was um, it really was a stark contrast between the two halves, I thought. I thought PSG were really good in the first half. Um, didn't really give City much time to settle. And, I mean, I struggled to see tactically anything City did too much different in the second half. I think it was just a bit more intensity. They, they, uh, they got in PSG's face a bit more. And... I think maybe PSG were a bit passive themselves. Probably justifiably thought that with a lead, maybe inviting City onto them wouldn't be that bad a ploy because then they'd be able to hit on the break. But they didn't really carry any threat. And yeah, just the momentum shift was was fairly remarkable, really. I'm, I think it's uh, you know an open question why City couldn't play that way in the first half, given how dominant they were in the second. Well, they were against an extremely confident PSG in that first 45 minutes. The, the kind of popular take Wednesday night was, though, that the Parisians very much bottled it in the second. 
Well, I think it was almost, well, it was a rare game of three halves. You don't get many of those in the sense that for the first 10 minutes, and I think it was, it's been a little bit forgotten, City were very in control. They completed tons and tons of passes, but they didn't really do much with it other than one Bernardo Silva chance. Um, and then PSG got a foothold. There was a couple of um, missed tackles in midfield by, by City, and that really sort of, you know, spurred Neymar, Di Maria, particularly Mbappe slightly less so on and then they were really hanging on for the rest of the half and it as you said earlier it was some of the most breathtaking football we've seen all season or for a long time from PSG but but then you know if there's one manager I guess you want to to have in the dressing room at half time to turn things around it's probably Pep Guardiola. I think the best performance of the tie was Pep Guardiola pre-match because I think we a lot of people, when it comes to this uh, this time of the year and, and this, this stage of competition, especially Champions League, we know what Guardiola's like. He's intense, you know, he tries to overthink things. And I think we all thought he was just, um, when it, pretty much when he's talking about, just enjoy it, talking about the quotes from uh, Johan Cruyff, that's, you know, at this stage of the, the competition, you just got to enjoy things. We all thought, yeah, 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 it's just all, it's all rhetoric. But actually, it, it's what's brought them through in the end. You know, it's the first time in a long time I've seen Manchester City players stressed like they were in the first half by an opposition, by the press and the intensity of the opposition. But they weren't panicked. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the cases, managers, personalities and, and the way that they are translates onto the pitch. You know, you look at people like Klopp and, and Simeone and the way their teams play. But with Pep this time, he, he took the, the right course of action in the, in the beginning, uh, before the game. Just be calm. Not... It's not be all and end all, and it's it's a quarter of a, of a, well, it's half of a tie, so it's not all finished in this game. So we don't have to panic too much, and and it's exactly what happened, especially second half. Yeah, it's so intense the first half. It was all one and two touch passing because both teams were pressing so hard, and it wasn't until the second half when City can take two, three, four touches and and have more sustained attacks that, that they took over in the second half and. Um, and a lot of that was, like I said, down the mentality of the manager. I think actually the the substitution of Cancelo for Zinchenko actually, for me, shaped things more in the final stages than than you might expect uh, a substitution of one fullback for another to do. Because Cancelo has a slight tendency to to play a bit more slowly. He likes to take a touch, move inside. Very good player, but Zinchenko just staying a bit further left, let Foden roam a bit more. There were more combinations. Uh, you, you saw City's attackers switch positions a lot more in the second half. I thought, and uh, you know, Foden being able to come in off the wing with Zinchenko there, I thought made a, a fair bit of difference actually. Yeah, I was going to say Foden, I think, was the key switch in some ways. And as you look at his touch map for the first half, and they're nearly all right on the left flank. And he, a lot of his passes were backwards. He looked a little bit overawed. Um, obviously, he did have one touch in the box, which was that really good chance towards the end, which he kind of hit straight at the keeper. But you look at the second half, and they're nearly all in the middle. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk this season about City playing without a striker and false nine and... I think it, it works. It's been proven to work, but I think it doesn't really work that well when Kevin De Bruyne does it. And he, he didn't look great at it in the, in the first half. And him dropping back a bit in the second half and Foden kind of going into that position looked much more dynamic. And I think that was that was one of the key key changes. Mm. Well, City coming back from being 1-0 down at half-time in consecutive away Champions League knockout games, which is especially curious given that they almost never do that in the Premier League. They've only achieved it, in fact, once in the last 105 Premier League games, a run dating back to 1995. Um, There is 
as I say, it was described by some as one of the all-time great second-half performances by City or by a, an English club in, in Europe. The counter-argument to that I've seen expressed as well, which is that if Verratti wasn't so short and if PSG had a competent keeper, then it would have been a very uh, different scoreline. Let's talk about De Bruyne's equaliser there. Uh, David, how much is Kayla Navas to blame for that and how much was it just the perfect delivery? I think it's more about respect than the uh, the delivery of the ball rather than uh, anything Kayla Navas could do with it. Um, there was a lot of people saying that it was it's a mistake, even on TV last night, they were saying mistake by Kayla Navas. But if you look at it, you have to look at these things from a keeper's point of view, from from his own eyes. And, and when you, you look at from where the balls came in, it hasn't travelled a long way. This isn't sort of the ball that's come out wide where you've had plenty of time to, to take a look at it. He's played the ball in fairly low, um, so when it reaches its its optimum height, that's he's only managing to see the ball for a, a split second to make that decision that he's going to come for it. The ball's not high enough over the top of the air, the oncoming players to to make that decision. Um, his initial decision just to stay and set and wait for a header coming in uh, or possible header coming in is the correct one. And then by the time the ball clears them and, and bounces into the six-yard box, it's, it's too late for him to recover. And um, it, it would be easy to say that um, his sole focus should be on the ball, but that's not the way that sight happens, especially in game uh, in in team sports like this. You, your sight is, is always distracted by the moving objects in front of you as well, so it's impossible to keep that sole focus on the ball. And... Um, and again, he just doesn't get a long enough look at it. What is it like? Between 25 and 30 yards away that De Bruyne puts the ball in from. Um, and from the hip, leaving his foot till it reaches his optimum height, he probably doesn't see a lot of that ball anyway. And everything he does in that, uh, in that situation is the correct thing to do. If his option is to guess where the ball's going, a lot of the time he'll get caught out in situations like that. So certainly by the time the, the ball has reached that kind of danger zone where Stones and Gundogan are coming in, he, clearly he can't commit to, to that or he's, he's waiting, to he's anticipating a, a header from them and that's why he, he doesn't make the move. But should he not have attacked the ball before that? You're saying he didn't have time to get across to the ball before that? I don't think there's enough air on the ball for, and enough time for him to make that decision. Uh, and and it'd be, it'd be, like I said, you'd be in the realms of guessing and uh, rather than anticipation. And I think that um, I was listening to, to the radio this morning, and I, I won't mention the, the, the pundit, but they were saying, well, you know, the ball's well over the uh, the head of the defenders and the strikers. It's at least six inches. You know what I mean? It, it, in those situations where it, there's lots of dynamic mu- movement in front of you, and there's lots of different decisions for you to make, six inches is nothing. And like I said, for the time where the ball reaches high enough for him to see the ball. There's not enough time for him to react to and make a decision to come for the ball. And a brilliant little bit of spin on on the ball as it touches just to then curl inside the post. Lovely delivery from Kevin De Bruyne, whatever his intentions was. Uh, let's talk then about the second uh, goal for Man City. Mahrez's free kick. Adam Rodriguez says, Can you ask David Priest if there's anything more frustrating as a keeper than having a defensive wall part like the Red Sea? If they had just jumped straight up, dot, 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 says Adam. It's criminal. It's absolutely criminal. And even when uh, Pochettino was asked after the game, he didn't really comment that much on a beaten sea. He was fuming with it. And, and you, so you would be. And and then you get... Because 
we've moved into a time now where we we are analysing keepers more and and I've said this in so many occasions where sometimes the analysis is just can we criticise the goalkeeper? Can we you know can the keeper be at fault here? So I've seen people say oh well you know could could he have uh, could have Navas done something about he done well just to get even near it with the ball coming through the the wall and. Um, and you're right, with so much detail is put into football these days, especially in set-piece situations, where you have a lot more control over what you do, even defensively. And you're putting draft excluders under the wall to stop it from going there. You don't have to worry about that. All you literally have to do, like the, 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 the tweet says there, you just have to move up and down. Is the one thing that's more frustrating for a keeper than having a defensive wall part, hearing people who haven't been keepers doing punditry on goalkeepers? I mean, every, everybody's entitled to their opinion, but as long as they, as long, as long as they, uh, as long as they appreciate that probably a, a goalkeeper uh, themselves can put a, a better spin on it. Mm. At least we now know why players, the draft excluder, faces uh, their own goal because you get a really real-time view of it going in. It looks quite the the horror on the face. Um, just one other thing on keepers, actually, it was good to see. Edison take a throw in at one point in the game, which is a relatively rare action from a goalkeeper. A nice tribute to Joe Hart in the BT studio, who's the only keeper to make three throw ins in a single Premier League game. So that is was that a nice right? Touch. All right. Mm. Guess the game. It's pretty obvious. Game where City were having to pile on pressure to score maybe two goals. Uh, QPR. Yeah. Jack, where was that form in the inter totally? Well, yeah, quite. Mm. Anyway, uh, well, two unusual goals then for City, but they deserve enormous credit for the way that they uh, reacted to being under the cosh from PSG in the first half. How over is this? A comeback looks unlikely, perhaps, but then City making a comeback look pretty unlikely at halftime of this one. Miguel Delaney pointing out that the last manager to overturn a Champions League first leg home defeat to go through was Pochettino. One of only two to do it at this stage. Um, I mean, I mean, we should probably call out the, just how good City have been. That was their 18th away win in a row in all competitions. They're the first English team to win six European Cup or Champions League games in a row since the 1960s. You know, they're, they're just in incredible form. But I think it's still really poised really well for the second leg because it doesn't really change, you know, it's the cliches and it doesn't really change PSG's task. But they, they're set up to for an away game at City in many ways. Um, they didn't really lose anyone to suspension or injury apart from Ghana, obviously. Um, right. Well, that that could be quite big. And I also, I'm slightly surprised to hear that it doesn't change PSG's task, conceding two away goals. But I think, you know, they they went to Old Trafford and won 3-1 this season. They, mm. I, I don't think they... I don't think the way they set up is necessarily going to be impacted by the fact they're away from home compared to in Paris. So, yeah, I think it's still it's still a pretty dangerous situation from City, but they do as David said earlier, they do now they f- they feel like they've come to a point in their in their careers where they they can cope with this pressure, which I think they haven't been able to on numerous occasions. Equally, it'll require a real show of character from a PSG and if there's been one question about PSG over recent years, it's been character. Yeah, you would hope that the Pochettino factor would would uh, galvanise them there, I suppose. And and last year's run, they did have moments of difficulty as well. Um, obviously, we know that there, over the years, there's a back catalogue of uh, quote-unquote bottling. But I, yeah, I think 
last night was interesting because you could you could see that they'd been kind of shaken a bit by how City came back into it, and, and they did slightly. Uh, they didn't lose their nerve, but certainly lost their cool, like Gay's tackle, obviously. But it was it was Gay also who gave the free kick away for Mahrez's goal. Very uh, needless hack at Foden, and you had Paredes kicking the ball away. I think they've got they have got a number of players who play close to or on the edge, which when things are going well is very good. But yeah, I think they they will need to be careful. You know, if things don't go their way from the start in Manchester I think they will need to steady themselves and, and not get into that slight spiral which some of their players can go into you do wonder how much of that can be laid at Pochettino a little bit you know he, his teams in his career have had the tendency to I mean we're coming up for five years since the the battle of Stamford Bridge where they essentially did what Gay did uh, in that game many many times it didn't get a red card so but Ajax Duncan true true but I mean, and if we Man can get City a game, the round before that. Well, that, yeah, that's what I'm going to say. If we can get a game as good as the the Man City Tottenham game at the Etihad that that year in the second leg, then it's going to be an all time classic. Let's see. Uh, just before we leave, this question from Steve C, who says, "Does Duncan know if Marquinhos is the first player to score against two clubs from the same city in the same Champions League season?" Duncan. No, it happens relatively often, actually. I mean, Serge Gnabry did it against um, Chelsea and Tottenham. Peter Crouch did it against Inter and Milan uh, in 2010. Well, he won't remember that. He won't. Know. Stephen Gerrard did it against Atletico and Real Madrid in 89. Lewandowski's also done it against Atletico and Real Madrid uh, in 16-17. And they're the only kind of city combos actually looked up and then thought, actually, it's probably more common than, than people think. Uh, Harry, is there any truth in the rumours that you're off to Spain in the summer? Uh, 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 sorry, me, uh, me no hablo inglés. Uh, what about one of the Manchester clubs? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's... Uh... Well, Harry, what about my source who says you're keen to stay at Spurs? <laughs> uh, can we keep the questions sensible, please? Kane's future at Spurs remains uncertain, but you're guaranteed to get money back as a free bet if one leg of your fourfold hacker lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, mid odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. This is The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Let's move on to Tuesday night's clash, which was Real Madrid 1, Chelsea 1. Two brilliant goals here. What do you think about these, David Pulisic and then Benzema? 
Well, Pulisic is a, is a great bit of individual there. His skill and and he's kept a kept a real cool head in there in in his finish when, um, especially when taking past uh, Courtois. But also Benzema's uh, goal coming from a corner and Marquinhos' goal coming from a corner just shows that even you know at this level how much is put in a set pieces these days and how valuable they are. I mean, especially when you've got players who can literally put the ball where they want them to. Almost every free kick in the corner is a goal-scoring opportunity. So, yeah, it showed the value of that as well. But I've been really impressed with Thomas Tugel just because since he's come in, people have been levelled an accusation that it's been a bit boring, it hasn't been exciting. But what he's done, he's made sure that Chelsea control games. You know, he's played this three-four-three system, which I think is great. Um, you know, playing with a false nine quite often leaves uh, central defenders redundant. They don't know what to do, and sometimes they, they get pulled out of position. And um, because, like I said, they, they used to they, they'd be more happy if they were up against a striker of Giroud or Abraham, and and it makes their job easier what they want to do. But also, like I said, it's it's about controlling the games, and they've done that brilliantly. And they've got the best of both worlds. You know, when they're in possession and um, and they're keeping the ball, then it's it's perfect. Of course, they can control the game there, but they control the game on transitions as well. And the front three that they've got, we can go on about Werner and and how he's been misfiring. He should be scoring a lot more goals, but just the the sheer threat of him. Um, you know, alters the way that teams can play against them. Right. I mean, that was next on my agenda to go on about Werner. He should be scoring more goals, but only because that's what Thomas Tuchel says on on the weekend after his, uh, his his miss against West Ham. It was kind of put to the Chelsea manager that his work rate and the amount of other things he contributes to the team means that basically we should all cut Timo some slack. And Tuchel was having none of it. He says, no, I put goalkeepers out there to get clean sheets and I get midfielders to do the creative stuff and I want strikers to score goals this time he said he missed a big one at West Ham and another one here we were sad and angry at the time but it also does not help to cry about it <laughs> this is the good thing about sport nobody cares tomorrow hmm I didn't think it was that bad a miss really I mean it was close in but he hit it okay um that's why you know people ask why xg values in the six yard books are, are right. usually lower than they imagine that's that's why because often they don't get scored um on the flip side that he has only scored three of his last 24 clear-cut chances, which is not ideal. So. Did you see... Because a lot, a lot of people praise Thibaut Courtois for, for essentially getting in the way. And Olivia Giroud was caught on the uh, Tele Monte Carlo cameras at half-time, actually kind of praising his opponent, uh, saying, uh, that save on Timo Puff to Courtois. Courtois replied, all I did was put my foot out like this and had that kind of expression of like... <laughs> I mean, it's so easy. Well, David, was it so easy? I mean, he's uh, he, he's he's not done what we talked about before about sort of anticipating where where he might be finishing the ball. You know, sometimes you have to be patient and just try and get yourself in the way of the ball. You still have to give him a lot of credit. I mean, it's um, you know, even though Werner should score, he's uh, or at least put it in a position where it makes it more difficult, save for for Courtois um, to to. Borrow a cliche, at least he made the keeper work. Well, that would have been 2-0, but it ended up being 1-1 thanks to Benzema's remarkable kind of overhead piece of opportunism, which was 
Real Madrid's only shot on target in the entire game. Uh, we barely saw the much-feared mid- midfield uh, of Madrid, uh, Modric and Cruz. Was that because of Kante and his continental coverage? Yeah, I think to some degree. I thought he was he was very good in that kind of defensive way, as we'd expect. But I, I thought he had an all-round performance that was just sensational. If anything, it was his his attacking contributions that that probably caught my eye here. The way Chelsea kind of passed carefully, but also quickly out from the back, often kind of going into the channels a bit more direct. And then it was Kante who was bursting beyond the the uh, the forwards who were dropping deep. And I thought his his footwork, he kind of picked his way through little midfield uh, tangles quite a few times. Uh, his pace, I think it's, that's an underrated aspect of his game. He's really quick. And yeah, just a, an all-round display that I've probably one of the best kind of midfield displays we've seen in the competition this season. And particularly against, you know, we, we know how much of a strength that area is for Madrid normally, but I thought Madrid's uh, three men in there looked a bit flustered. We saw Casemiro kind of bit rash on a couple of occasions. I, I don't think Madrid are used to having that little control. They're not possession totalitarians, but they do like to you know keep the play in front of them to some extent, uh, manage the tempo of the game. And I didn't think they could do that against Chelsea. Kante's um, kind of relentlessly miss pigeonholed, isn't he, as a player? I mean, people think, oh, because he won the league with Leicester um, and, you know, Craig Shakespeare said he could cover all these positions. People focus on the fact that that was a defensive thing. But as Jack said, he's always been really good at attacking. Maurizio Sarri even sort of played him as an attacking midfielder. Yeah, I never understood that. But I think you could kind of see why he might have thought that. He may not have done it that well, but... But his display on on Tuesday night, you know, he completed more dribbles than any other player on the pitch. He, you know, as Jack said, he broke the lines. He he was the the sort of key attacking threat, really. And I think the other thing for me with Chelsea, compared to the Lampard era at the start of the season, is when you looked at Chelsea's squad at the at the start of the season, it just looked like they had too many players, like loads of good attacking players. But how would you fit them in? Mm. But this system they now play. I looked at the bench at the start of the game and I was like, well, that's a really strong bench, but I don't think anyone has, deserve, has undeservedly missed out. And the, But they get to the second half and they can bring on Ziyech, Kai Havertz and Rhys James and that immediately kind of re-established their, their foothold in the game. And suddenly, from looking like a sort of jumble of players that don't quite fit together, they now look like, you know, arguably the strongest squad left in the in the competition. Arguably the strongest side left in the competition. Strongest squad left in the competition. Not yeah. So I think in terms of strength and depth, they've probably got more than the near the team. Now, they're probably not as good on their day as City and PSG. But, you know, I think assuming they go through, then right. they're going to be a really difficult opponent for whoever gets through the other one. City's bench is pretty strong, Duncan. I'd, I'd still take Chelsea's in terms of versatility and, and being able to change a game and, you know, switch a game mid-game. All right, Duncan. I'm backing off. Uh, how does this one look for the second leg? Sergio Ramos could be back next week, as may Fulham Mendy, but Marcelo may be missing because, of course, he's been selected to monitor elections to the Madrid Assembly at polling stations. It's, I mean, it's the classic. It's up there with kind of rolling your ankle and ACLs. Uh, I mean, that's not that much weirder than the actual position he took up on, on Tuesday night, I think. Like, we've seen it a few times in La Liga, kind of him roaming infield and... I, I've been a Marcelo fan for many years, but I don't think this was a great advert for his continued relevance at that level. I thought he looked 
quite off the pace. And yeah, uh, it, it seemed to me that he was wandering inside more because he knew he'd get exposed if he had to run back on the outside than anything else. It's just occurred to me that next week he'll be concerned with making sure people do put crosses in the box as opposed <laughs> to... Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Thomas Tuchel unbeaten in five meetings with Real Madrid in the Champions League, the most of any manager in the competition's history. That's remarkable. Are Chelsea going to be OK? Is that 1-1 going to be enough for them? What do you think, David, Duncan? Uh, I mean, you never discount uh, Real Madrid, but I, I do think that's... They won't rue the chances. I know people, it's always the old cliche that people, that you will rue your chance if you miss them early on in the game and, and early on in, the, in this tie. But um, I can't see Chelsea um, giving up more uh, two or three goals in this game. Famous last words, obviously. But yeah, just the way that they control games and, and the way that they've uh, the defence has been so mean, uh, it is, as long as they can keep Benzema quiet, then they should have no problem getting through. Yeah, I think... It's very rare in, at this stage of a season in the Champions League where you can concentrate on a on a single player. But Benzema, is, so much of Real Madrid's goals go through him that yeah, keep him quiet and they they should be okay. Mm. We obviously saw Hazard come on mm. late on, and you know he played one nice ball actually. But it struck me that the the Pulisic goal was very much a kind of Eden Hazard style goal really, and you know he offered a lot more during the game than than obviously Hazard did. Very good. Jack Mantell says, in amongst all the quality football, I think there should be a mention for the referees in the Champions League semi-finals. Excellent performances from McAlee and Brick. You big suck up, Jack Mantell. Uh, <laughs> next up for Chelsea, it's Fulham, while Man City visit Palace and Premier League is next. Also coming up a little bit later on in a week of really top-level European action, perhaps, the most significant continental clash of all. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. Keep listening for Julien Laurent versus James Horncastle in the Inter-Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. And it's pre-recorded. Exciting. That Jules et Jim later on in the Inter-Totally. Duncan, you must be excited as well because you've got your quarterfinal, I think, coming up Monday morning. That's right. With Sasha, who's, you know, clearly been hiding away, preparing this week. So, yeah, I'm quite worried. Right. State-engineered athlete, I think you described him as. Uh, previously, I think that uh, was you. <laughs> Duncan's hair, glasses, and polo neck suggest he w- might be the one doing the engineering. That's true. We've all seen Icarus. Yes, 
Yes. Uh, Premier League this weekend. Only five rounds to go. What's coming up over the next couple of days? Well, Friday, it's Leicester at Southampton with Ian Acho in the in the starting lineup. Will it be double figures this time? Saturday, Palace play Man City, who could wrap up the title this weekend, depending on what they and Man United do. Relegation could be all but sorted too. Brighton, who are currently seven points clear of Fulham, will be hosting Leeds, while the Cottagers make the long journey north to Chelsea. Chelsea are in the race for top four spots. They are now three points clear in fourth place of West Ham, who will be having an all-claret affair on Monday at Burnley. Liverpool, who are four points behind Chelsea, will visit Man United on Sunday afternoon. Spurs, who are five of Chelsea, host Sheffield United later that day. While Everton, who are six points back, but with a game in hand, so kind of still in it, face Aston Villa. Also this weekend, Newcastle Arsenal on Sunday and the other game on Monday is West Brom Wolves. Now, since our last show, Leicester reinforced their top four chances with that come from behind win against Crystal Palace with the uh, the second goal in a, in a 2-1 victory coming 10 minutes from time. What a belter it was from Kelechi Iheanacho. Who was impressed with this? It was, it, especially it, his goal, it was an absolutely remarkable piece of striking. Yeah. Touch to come inside, and everyone spoke about it after the game that he, he just he, he, he shoots before even the defender gets set, before the goalkeeper gets set, and the ball's in the back of the net before both of them even have, can react. And, it, and it, it, it is remarkable. And Kasper Schmeichel said commented that he was uh, that he does something that he does all the time in training. And it, it, it is obviously a, a confidence issue with him. I think. I mean, you see him after games and. Played with a lot of uh, Nigerian players uh, with similar uh, character to him. Sometimes you can be too humble, you know. It's always great to be humble, but you can you can you can be, you can be too humble in those situations. And 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 as a footballer, and I think that um, he just needs that confidence to to bring that side out. That's that it's obviously been there inside him all this time. Um, he he's he's on a great run of form and. Goals like that just it just makes you think. It's it turns everyone's opinion against him. I think a lot of people are just thinking that he, you know, he, he was a, a twenty-five million pound flop, and City were right to get rid of him. But you know, if he can continue this, then it's going to be more than money well spent. Mm, absolutely, the numbers about his uh, his form since coming into the Leicester side. He's only the fourth player in Premier League history to reach ten goals in a season, but only scoring the first of them in February. The other three were all January signings, Tony Yeboah, Papi Sisse and uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. He's also one of six Premier League players to have scored more home goals in 2021 than Liverpool. Mm. Leicester, anyway, have got a seven-point margin now over the team in fifth West Ham. They'll be travelling two Saints this Friday. They've got a tough run of games to finish off on this season. Man United, Chelsea and, and Tottenham with an FA Cup final against Chelsea thrown in there. But Saints coming up on Friday and uh, Newcastle after that. Saints, this will be their first visit to St Mary's since a Friday night last season when, you know. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the thing we're not allowed to talk about. I mean, 1.2% of Leicester's Premier League goals all time came in that, came in that game. Um, I've been thinking about it and, you know, the ESL has shown us that you know, to be a big club, you kind of need like a unique brand that's recognised around the world. And sort of thinking Southampton should make losing nine nil their brand because they've done it again this season. So if they mm. just do that once a season, that's a pretty attractive thing to bring into any kind of proposed Super League is to you know guarantee at least one team a, a hefty win. Um, 
So we'll see. Work that into a new logo, maybe a motto. Nine is fine. Yeah. Also, not just a big win, but nine, because you have that kind of nail-biting, will they get well, the second that's, digit? That's the frustrating thing about the game last season, was that um, Johnny Evans, was you, you could see him telling the players that, that nine nil was the record and they should try and go for ten. And then he missed an absolute city. You think Timo Werner's is bad midweek. Johnny Evans missed one from about three millimetres off the line. So, mm. I mean, you know, there hasn't been a ten nil in the... Or te- team scoring 10 goals in the top flight since 1963. So, yeah, maybe it'll happen this week. Maybe so. I'll, I'll be honest, I don't really care what happens in this game. But what I, what I don't want to see is an emotional Ralph uh, Hasenhutl at the end of the game. I think this season's almost broke him. From not just the 9-0, I think even the win against Liverpool, his first, his first win against Jurgen Klopp, Never, you know, since then he's just been on the verge of tears. He's like a, I don't know if you remember when you when you first have when you have your first child and then like you become so emotional that like even adverts start making you tearful. That's what he's become now. I imagine that Angus Gunn was pretty emotional after conceding those nine goals in that game, David. It was I think his last appearance ever for Saints, poor chap. He's now at Stoke. What was the most goals you ever let in in, in one game? It's seven. Oh, what was that like? Take us through them, kind of one by one, your state of mind. Well, it happened twice, both times at Celtic Park, against Celtic. And um, the first time I, I was concussed and I didn't remember it, so that's... <laughs> so the first goal goes in, David, and you think, that's a shame, but we're still in this. The second one, you think, yeah, that is a setback. By the third or the fourth, at which point do you cease caring? It's probably the moment that you start looking at the clock and wishing it would go faster and it actually starts going slower. And you know what makes it worse? At that time, I don't think they still do it. They used to play gold music. Some dance tune uh, might be like De Rude or something like that. And it was like, because as soon as that happened, especially if it happened in the first 10, 15 minutes, then you know, it's not going to end well. Luckily for me, though, after I'd left, I think they were beaten 8 0 and 9 0 by Celtic at Celtic Park. Push me further down the pecking order anyway. Mm. So. What year was that, David? The first time was 1999. Mm-hmm. Don't look it up. No, I'm, I'm looking up something else. <laughs> uh, right, I think, was it, it was either Kerncraft 4000, I think, which is... Was it that one? If it was Darude, it was. <laughs> was it that one? Oh, I don't know what it was. Or was it just can't get enough by the Depeche Mode? <laughs> but it was like a dance tune. Oh. Yeah, the World Cup samba thing from '98. So when you hear that now, it sends shivers down your spine and a faraway look in your eyes. I've had therapy now. So I'm, I'm totally fine with it now. All right, then. We'll, we'll move on. Elsewhere this weekend, as mentioned, the title race could reach its nail-biting conclusion if United lose and City win. City are at Crystal Palace, who were pretty good on Monday for a team supposedly on the beach, but have only had one victory in their last seven. Man United, meanwhile, hosts Liverpool Sunday at 4.30. It's the big marquee fixture of this weekend. Do we have high hopes for it, though? Yeah, it's, it's hard to say with this one because obviously over the last few years, these two together have had a very strong 
nil-nil energy. There have been some really dull games between these two. Um, and, and you sense that Man United wouldn't be overly dissatisfied with that, given given the implications for Liverpool. But Liverpool's result at the weekend means they really have to go for this. And I suppose the question is whether that additional uh, desire will lead to a more gung-ho approach, a more open game. You'd hope so. But then I guess come back to me when I've fallen asleep on the couch halfway through it. Well, you never know, Jack. They had that cracking 3 2 in the, in the FA Cup. All right, you, you do. do. United have Roma on Thursday evening, but as Jack points out, Liverpool have to go for it on this one. Throw everything at them. Jurgen Klopp has never won at Old Trafford. Could this be the weekend? It'll be 0 0. United have drawn seven nil games 0 0 this season. They've won off their, their record in a league campaign. Oh, look, they're playing Liverpool. It's just, I think the the most excitement will be before the game outside the ground because there's going to be a big protest. Um, this is the only game I've ever watched projected onto a bedsheet uh, in a pub in Rosham, and there should be some good bedsheet action outside with you know slogans scrawled on. But yeah, I right, can't and see two clean sheets inside as well. <laughs> well very good, mm. yeah. David, do you want to put the the guys right about this? Let's have some respect for this fixture. I just think about uh, you know Man United Liverpool is that it's it rem- just reminds me of the first time that Solskjaer actually got anything right tactically. I think it might have been the first was it the first game at Old Trafford against Liverpool when he was in charge when they went to three at the back and basically just had three central defenders defend the width of the goal and just allowed Liverpool to put crosses into the box and just headed them away and yeah it was a it might be the first and only time I've thought that as well but. It's, uh, it's it's definitely one that sticks out. Mm. OK, well, that's coming up 4.30 on Sunday afternoon. Meantime, Liverpool still in the top four picture at the moment. West Ham, though, the nearest competition to Chelsea. They could actually pull level with Thomas Tuchel's side if they win at Burnley on Monday and Chelsea fall at home to Fulham. History's not really on Fulham's side here. They haven't won at Stamford Bridge since, do you know when? 1960-something? No, it's more recent than that. October 1979, they've only won one of the last 39 meetings, home and away, since then. But then again, Fulham are battling for their top-flight survival. And West Brom, who were in a similar predicament, did go to Stamford Bridge and got that remarkable 5-2 victory against Chelsea only the other day. If Fulham did get the win, Brighton are playing Leeds, you know, could, could it be on? The only notes I've got here are that Fulham haven't won a London derby in the Premier League since Boyhood came out. One is a oh. long period where not much happens, but you're still emotionally involved. Uh, and the other is a Richard Linklater film. So, um, yeah, I can't see Fulham doing much in this. I see. We, okay. we could all just save everyone a lot of time if we just give Chelsea the three points and we see what Scott Parker's wearing and what he says after the, after the game. Interesting. Scott Parker, by the way who has been uh, mentioned in context of the Spurs job alongside red-hot favourites Eric Ten Hag and Graham Potter. It's an eclectic mix. Spurs themselves are technically in the top four race. They are five points behind Chelsea. They'll be hosting Sheffield United and also worth a mention here, Everton, who are six points off Chelsea, but with a game in hand, they host Aston Villa. Spurs against Sheffield United. Sheffield United playing with the 
pressure off last weekend and getting the three points. It was Mourinho against Wilder when they last met these two sides. Now it's Mason against Heckingbottom. Who will it be in charge for Spurs next year? I just think that uh, they should go for Graham Potter. And if if you could give him a side with uh, more attacking intent and, and with all respect to, to Brighton players, he's building a good young squad there. But um, you know, with with better and more experienced players, I think he'd do wonders with that Spurs side. I mean, it still, still remains to be seen how how much longer that the likes of Son and Kane will be at the club for. But as it is with the team that they've got now. Yeah, I can I could see them challenging, you know, three or four players up the table at least. It would be akin to when Liverpool appointed Brendan Rodgers and that Swansea, you know, you could see they were playing good football and that he had a lot of good ideas, but a lot of people were like, well, hang on, how does this qualify him for a job as big as Liverpool? But yeah, I agree with David. I think it's I think the the flip side to that is whether if you've got a player like Harry Kane who's who's twenty eight soon and he needs to win stuff in the next few years, whether he'd be willing to sign up to a, possibly a project that might take a couple of seasons to come to fruition. Brennan Rogers, who you mentioned there, is a kind of equivalent appointment, of course, was another name that had been heavily linked, certainly in the press, with the Spurs job, but that's all gone a bit quiet. Well, we'll see what happens as we head towards uh, the summer. We'll see as well whether Spurs will find their way into the top four. It does seem unlikely. Everton, six off Chelsea, but with a game in hand and a clash with Aston Villa, who are on a rotten run of form, could they just put themselves back into this mix, do you think? I think a lot will depend on whether Dominic Calvert-Lewin can get back and probably fit for the rest of the season. I think without him, they do lack a focal point. Uh, The defence has been, I think, decent enough, especially away from home. They've been better away than at home, I think. But uh, Hishalison does need someone to play off in attack and there's, I think there's only so far you can get kind of swinging balls in to no one uh, I think they're probably a bit reliant on, on set pieces and so on so if Calvert-Lewin can get back in something like the form he showed earlier in the season they've got a very approachable run in so not impossible I'd say but probably probably an outside bet I mean they've they've only won one of their last nine home games in the Premier League Everton which if you look at how close they are to the top four, you think that they get, I think they're going to end the season with a this is a massive missed opportunity rather than oh, we came close. Mm. This, you know, this is the sort of season you get every few years where the top four does become open, and Everton themselves benefited from, from that in 2004 05. And this was definitely another opportunity, and given the way they started, but yeah, since the turn of the year, they're particularly at home, they've just yeah, looked just brittle and, and liable to pull out a, a bad result. And Villa. Villa are exactly the sort of team that could could go to Goodison and you know get their get their mojo back. Mm. Although they are competing Everton against the Chelsea side, who you claim have got the best squad in the Champions League. So you know, fair enough. I, I say you claim, I make it sound a bit accusatory, but uh, you know, clearly are a, a top side. But we we'll see what happens this weekend and react to it on Monday. Still to come, uh, other games that are on their way, including Newcastle Arsenal. But next, a special on this day. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. 29th of April, listener, on this day, 25 years ago, this. But I'll tell you, you can tell him now if you're watching it, we're still fighting for this title, and he's got to go to Middlesbrough and get something. And, And I'll tell you, honestly, I will love it if we beat them. Love it. It's only the most famous post-match interview in Premier League history. Kevin Keegan after a win with Newcastle at Ellen Road. Newcastle's grip on the title, you know the story. He's asked about Sir Alex Ferguson's suggestions that Nottingham Forest weren't going to try hard against Newcastle because they had a post-season friendly coming up for Stuart Pearce's testimonial and uh, and all that. Say that about a man like Stuart Pearce. Exactly. And it's nice that that, when was that, 1996, is still every bit red hot and current in social media terms yeah we saw it after the after prime minister's questions this week it was it was once again on earth the thing that really freaks me out in terms of the passing of time is that Stuart Pearce is now older than Brian Clough was when he retired from football management so yeah relentless that is extraordinary April 29th by the way is a biggie in terms of on this day because it was in April the 29th that also saw the first ever football match to feature numbers on the back of shirts in England. Elsewhere, it had been going on for years in Australia since 1911, in America as well, the United States 1924. But the 1933 FA Cup final between Everton and Man City saw Everton wearing newfangled numbers from 1 to 11, while City went with 12 to 22, which is a very nice way of approaching it. Everton won 3-0, by the way. Oop, Jack. Just as we've got David on, I, w- I want to get his thoughts on what is the next most acceptable number for a goalkeeper after one. Like, in, for example, in a 23-man World Cup squad, one's gone. W- what are your two next choices? Because I, I, I saw Edouard Mendy for Chelsea wearing 16, and 16 doesn't feel that goalkeeper-y mm. to me. No, I would say 12 or 13. Most outfield players wouldn't want to wear 13 anyway. Me- me- Maybe he's the, the less superstitious about that uh, than they used to be, but um, 12 or 13, that's it. David, uh, it's also today, 29th of April, the 30th anniversary of the time fellow former keeper turned media star David Icke appeared on Wogan. Icke, who'd uh, previously been a goalkeeper at Hereford and then a BBC sports presenter to considerable success, appeared on the popular light entertainment chat show Wogan and told the affable host that he was the son of God and that Britain would soon be devastated by tidal waves and earthquakes. Now, why this isn't as present in meme terms as Kevin Keegan's (laughs) clip is, I don't know. But Ike very much becoming the Matt Letitia of his day there. Coincidentally, uh, he was trending on Twitter this week, David Ike, due to a TV appearance by a sort of Elrond-esque Tony Blair that a lot of people thought confused initially with David Ike, whose hair has kind of grown out. I think a lot of people, David, reacted to that going, well, goalkeepers, they are... Funny bunch. Is that fair? Not anymore. I, th- I think um, you look at a lot of goalkeepers now, they're quiet, boring, studious, which is good. It's, it's exactly what's needed to be a goalkeeper. You don't want a firecracker in your goal, really, do you? To go off in pressure situations. A Jens Lemon. So, uh, well, there you go. David Icke. Yeah, I mean, he, that, that was such a famous story back in the day, but I suspect he's become a bit of a The, the weird now. thing is that mm. 25 years since Keegan and 30 since Ike, Keegan feels maybe not, you know, 20 ago, and the Ike thing feels 35. It's weird right. how it's all compressed. Well, you see, mm. that, that, I mean, this is my point, you see Keegan all the time, but this kind of 
this kind of contemporary sports presenter, because that's how most people knew David Icke. He was kind of a BBC football host, suddenly saying, yeah, I am the son of God and calamity is about to visit these islands. And amongst other things about lizards, which was a strong topic for him, um, doesn't seem to have survived. Maybe, you know, maybe the lizards got to the tapes. I don't know. You, anyway. you say that, but I, yeah. I read an article about QAnon the other day and David Icke's name was invoked uh, on, on two or three occasions. So maybe uh, he's having a resurgence in relevance. Crikey, I don't want to know about your browsing history, uh, Jack. <laughs> uh, David, I know you've got to disappear very shortly to do Rochdale things. So let me pose this to you on behalf of uh, listener Ander Itoralde who says, who have been the three goalkeepers, and they don't have to necessarily be the best three, that David has liked the most this season in the Premier League? Yeah, well, I'll start with the, the, the one that probably everyone would, uh, would pick out, and that's Emi Martinez. I think that um, he's been fantastic for Villa this season, and um, he's as a goalkeeper, you, you, oh, for a goalkeeper in your team, you want him to make a, di- a big difference, and he certainly has to them. And... Um, and I mean, even I had a lot of question marks around him because, you know, even at the age that he is, I think he's is he 28 now, and he hasn't really had a consistent run in, of any kind in uh, insides. And, and sometimes it's about, goalkeeping's about um, coping with the bad times. So when you have those dips, when you're making mistakes, how do you sort of recover? Uh, and we, we've never really been able to see that from him because he's not been given the chance anywhere. So I've, I've been really impressed with him this season. Uh, another one is uh, Melier at, at Leeds. I think he's just a fantastic prospect. I mean, looks 12 years old, but he, he handles situations with uh, so much ease and um, his distribution and his calmness um, under his, under pressure. Uh, yeah, he'll make mistakes, of course. He, he's still a young kid, but he's, he's somebody who in two or three years is just going to be a, an incredible goalkeeper. And, uh, and the last one's Robert Sanchez at Brighton, who's, um, who was actually, he, he had a season on loan at Rochdale last season. He was here at Rochdale. And, um, and obviously, they rave about him, the coaches rave about him here. And, um, and it was something that I didn't see coming. You know, I thought that Matty Ryan was doing okay, but um, wasn't setting the world on fire at Brighton. But... They made a big decision to bring uh, to bring Sanchez back in, and he's been incredible. I mean, coming for crosses, he's just he, yeah, he, he just takes the pressure so much off that defence. Would he have got to Kevin De Bruyne's ball? Do you think if he'd been in goal for Paris Saint Germain? No, because I don't think it was a height issue really. Okay, it wasn't a case of that uh, that Navas didn't come for the ball. There was enough height in the ball for him to make the decision anyway. All right then, David. All right, well, listen, best of luck then with these remaining two games for Rochdale. And thanks very much for being with us today. Lovely to have you. Always a pleasure. Excellent. Next for us, listener, we are going to move on to one or two more of the weekend's fixtures and then the Intertotally. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. All right, back to the weekend. Brighton leads on Saturday at three o'clock. As we mentioned, if Fulham get a result at Stamford Bridge, could happen. Then Leeds could really reopen the relegation battle here. Monday, then West Brom against Wolves alongside Burnley, West Ham. And by the way, West Ham have had uh, Balbuena's uh, red card rescinded, so he will be available for that game. Hmm. The only thing I'm pedantic about is that you, you don't get the red card rescinded, you get the suspension rescinded. So Thanks. His red card will stay on his record, so just, well, just put it out there. Doesn't seem right, does it? For those games, though, another iconic Premier League fixture, Newcastle-Arsenal. Yes, the... Uh, the game that proved that 4-0 is a, is a dangerous lead. Um, to put into context how absurd that match was, yes. of, of Premier League games where a team was led by four goals, mm-hmm. the overall record is zero defeats, right. one draw, I think we, we know which one, and 718 wins. So, Crikey. So, yeah, Arsenal, they, they kind of missed, missed that opportunity, I would say. Although that has become a bit of a brand, hasn't it? I can't hear Newcastle and Arsenal without thinking of the 4-4, although speaking of the passage of time, it is now 10 years since that game happened. And since then, Newcastle's record against Arsenal is basically losing all the time. They've had 18 games, they lost 16 of them, drawn one and won one. Well, this is what's one of the things that wasn't really mentioned that much about the, you know, the heritage and all the ESL stuff was that you look at the fixer list like this weekend in the Premier League and it's all the little stories that pop to your mind when you see fixers. You know, we've got Southampton, Leicester, we've got Newcastle, Arsenal. We've got the horrible outcome eventually of Man United, Liverpool in football terms every time. So these little kind of stories that, that date back maybe, you know, 10, 20, 50, even 100 years. That's mm. that's the essence of the game, really. These foolish things remind me of you. As they head into this clash here, as I mentioned, Newcastle got a terrible record against Arsenal, but... When you look at the two sides, Jack, at the moment, the Magpies look like the side with real momentum behind them. They had looked completely down and out. Best case scenario, maybe they'd get a result at Fulham on the final day and sneak staying up. But instead, they're completely out of the relegation picture. Yeah, it's it's amazing, really, how transformative an effect one player can have on a team. And I think Alan Samaxman has been that, that man for Newcastle recently. They just... It, Certain players seem to have within them just some strange arcane energy that, that just manages to lift the level of those around them. Obviously, he's a very uh, joyful player as well. He's not, you know, it could be a it could be a, a strong tackling defender who gets the players going, but he he tugs at the heartstrings. I think even though there aren't fans at the ground, there seems to be a yeah, just just something in the way that they play when he's in the team that makes everyone else believe. Uh, obviously, still major shortcomings with the side, but add one player to the mix and you do realise that they have got others who are capable of, of being exciting. You know, Almiron can be an exciting player uh, if he's paired with the right partners in attack. And Joe Willock as well, we've seen some important late goals from him. Uh, yeah, just, just a sense of fun and purpose seems to have been just conjured from Sam Axman's feet and yeah really pleasing to see yeah Arsenal need need perhaps a player to come in like that and lift the spirits although who knows what they'll do Thursday night when they have their Europa League semi-final against their former manager Unai Emery and his Villarreal meantime music streaming entrepreneur Daniel Ek says he has secured the funds to make a bid for Arsenal and he wants to start talks next week Cronky's 
apparently less keen on that. They say they are 100% committed to the Gunners and are not selling any stake, even though Eck has lined up Thierry Henry, Dennis Bergkamp and Patrick Vieira to be part of his bid. I'm not sure in what capacity, anyway. All very exciting. Well, we look forward to seeing what happens between Newcastle and Arsenal this time. Allow me to briefly mention that if you sign up for a subscription with The Athletic, you'll get unrivaled coverage on the business end of the season, all the articles, all the podcasts ad-free, and Q&As with writers, all for just £4 a month. This exceptional offer is available at theathletic.com slash totally. And amongst things you can read on The Athletic if you sign up, uh, right now are James Horncastle's exclusive interview with Henrik Mkhitaryan, and also, Jack, a lovely piece from yourself, which will be up this weekend, about Felan Mendy, who you're a major fan of. Yeah, big fan. Spoke to a couple of his old coaches, uh, and I think he'll be a, a really important addition to the Madrid side if he's fit to play in the second leg, which I think he will be. All right. OK. To conclude today's show, then, it's inter-totally cup time. The Inter Totally Cup, sponsored by Paddy Power. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy's offers are at full capacity. Get a free bet if one leg of your four-plus bold acca lets you down on all football matches and markets. TCC Supply, 18 plus, be OK, then, moments away from another dramatic quarter-final in the Inter Totally. So far, we've seen Michael Cox defeat Matt Davis-Adams. Michael will now face the winner of Monday morning's clash between Duncan Alexander and Sasha Gurionov. Woof. The other side of the draw, well, last Monday, saw Benji Lanyado putting out Jack Lang on a tiebreaker. Benji has gone into the semi-finals, but who will he be facing there? Let's meet the contestants. Born and Paris bred, he is the PS genius. Ooh la la, missus, it's Julien Laurent. Jules, thank you for that classy tribute to Jim Steinman. Thank you, thank you for having me. No, not at all, not at all. Jules, um, this is big, you're in the quarterfinals. This is where it ended for you, of course, last year in the Intertotally. In classic Parisian fashion, you know, quarterfinal exit. But now facing somebody you know really well and I think I'm right in saying there's a certain amount of needle in this one <laughs> it's, it's like playing like a, against a brother and you know you always really? want to be your brother but it always hurts when you do and that's, that's very much like it, like it feels like today crikey okay it's going to be an emotional contest this then uh, can we just check on your charity and wager should you prove the winner my charity is Dementia UK, uh, again, very close to my heart. And my bet would be that Juventus won't qualify for the Champions League next season. Ooh. They won't finish top four. I see. All right. Let's meet the man between you and a semi-final. And his opponent. Every encounter with him is hairy, but come hull or high water, you can depend on his expertise to come to the fore. He is James Horncastle. Bacon man, this bacon bread. All right, laid back with James Horncastle. James, how are you feeling ahead of this one against your brother Jules? Laid back. You know, I, I can't lose to Jules. 
know, our friendship will remain. So, right. you know, I think I, I'm taking the Carlo Ancelotti approach that this, yes, it's a high pressure occasion, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm just going to go out there and, and, and do my best quizzing. Right. And let quizzing be the real winner, I think. Mm. Neither of you made it past the quarterfinals last year, so this is going to be huge. James, can I just check on your charity and wager? So my charity is uh, Reporters Without Borders. And my wager, James, mm. is that Chelsea will win the Champions League. Huge. Let's get our quiz on. Jules, you're up first. Here comes question one. At the 2018 World Cup, who scored Belgium's late winner as they came from 2-0 down to beat Japan in the last 16? Nasser Shadley. Is correct. Question two. When Leicester City won the Premier League in 2015-16, they did so with a player on loan from Swansea in their squad. Who was he? Nathan Dyer. Is correct. Question three. Who was the last footballer to win the Ballon d'Or while playing in France? Jean-Pierre Papin. Is correct. Question four. Gabriel Battistuza played for Fiorentina, Roma, and which other City A club? Batty goal. We remember him at Florence. Won the title yeah. at Roma. Which other yeah. City A club did he turn out for? Yeah, I know it. I know it. I know it. Genoa. No, it really, really wasn't Genoa. It was Inter. Oh. Okay. Three out of four so far for you, Jules, as we go to question five. With which club did Giovanni Trapattoni win the Portuguese league title in 2005? Benfica. Is correct. A very respectable four out of five for you there, Jules. How do you feel? I feel good, but that Batistuta, I almost said Inter, and then I thought, no, I could not see him in that shirt, so I just went really rogue, thinking like could have gone there really late in his career. So, wow. yeah, But pretty happy. So, there was some tricky one. I don't want to say that, you know, sometimes this, this game is fixed, but I hope that his questions is as hard as mine. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and I want to see both his hands, right? Right. Because we know that, you know, in yep. Italy, we know what happens with cheating. Okay, we're on a Zoom call, everybody. We can see exactly what's going down here. All right, James Horncastle, here comes your first question. What is your favourite colour? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no. Um... <laughs> What's your mother's maiden? It's got to be blue, James. got to be blue. Right. Question two. Question two. No. <laughs> Clearly having a bit of, bit of fun. Anyway, uh, question one then. Which is the least populous nation to ever appear at the World Cup finals? Honduras? Nope. The answer is Iceland. Made their debut at the 2018 World Cup. Question two. When Leicester City won the Premier League in 2015-16, they only lost three games, but one team beat them twice. Which team was that? Arsenal. Is correct. Question three. Who was the last player to win the Ballon d'Or while playing in England? Cristiano. Is correct. You're on two out of three. From which club, question four, from which club did Barcelona sign Luis Figo? Sporting. Is correct. Question five, and this to pull level with Julien and force a tiebreak. 
With which club did Louis van Gaal win the Eredivisie in 2009? That would be AZ Alkma. Oh, my word, he's done it. Astonishing show of knowledge there. After that, <laughs> that misstep in the first question, he comes back strong, he comes back hard, and he has forced a tiebreaker. Jules, crikey, you thought you had that. But now I must put to you and James a question of numbers and I'm going to ask you both to text me your reply. The person with the closest answer will be taking that spot in the semifinals against Benji Lanyardo. Okay, so the tiebreaker question is, how many goals in total were scored in the 2019-2020 Premier League season? (laughs) How many goals in total were scored in the 2019-2020 Premier League season? You text or WhatsApp me the... Your answers. Okay, I've had James's answer. He's Googling. Jules is Googling. I've just sent mine. I've just sent mine. So, I've had both of your answers. James Horncastle has said 1,600. Julian Laurence has gone for 1,120. The answer... For the number of total goals scored in the 2019-2020 Premier League season is 1,034. Jules, you're in ah! the semi-final. Ah, <laughs> oh. congratulations, Jules. Thank you, thank you to my fans, uh, my family, you know, my parents. 1,600 goals. What, what league did you think that was? That's like. Do you, mean, do you know how many used games to there are in the season? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you thought about, yeah. <laughs> well, James, there's a, uh, a huge blow to lose you. A magnificent performance there in, in, in on those questions after that difficult uh, beginning. But, uh, Jules, congratulations. And uh, looking forward to seeing how you get on against Benji Laniado. Felicitations, as they say in Paris, Julianne. You're through to the semi-finals of the Intertotally Cup. And Jules's bet that Juve will finish outside the top four in Serie A is priced at 17 to 10 at paddypower.com or on the Paddy Power app. Odds are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. And please gamble responsibly. Wow, that was extraordinary, wasn't it? It's really whipped up my enthusiasm for Monday morning's clash, Duncan, featuring you. I mean, whether it's into totally or the Champions League, you often get some of the best ties in the quarterfinals. Um, you know, often the finals can be a damp squib. So, yeah, I mean, the, just hope me and Sasha can, can live up to that, really, and not do a sort of nil-nil, you know, bleak uh, aggregate. If it was nil-nil, it would go to a tiebreaker. And just to say, while Jules and, and James were struggling there, you nailed that tiebreaker question. That's very much your, your ace in the hole. I suspect I, that wouldn't have been a tiebreaker for me. I don't know. I, I would have gladly taken it, yeah. Right. OK, well, that's coming up on Monday, along with our reaction to all of the weekend's action. And a little look forward to the semi-final second legs coming up next week. For now, that's it. So many thanks to, to Jack and to Duncan and to the uh, now often goalkeeping things, David Priest And you, listener, thanks ever so much. We'll see you Monday morning, I hope. Have a great weekend. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. 
The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.